0: Well, there's a difference between asserting something and demonstrating it. There's a difference between simply saying that something is true, asserting it to be a fact, and then validating your assertion or demonstrating your assertion. One of the features of Hebrews that already just in this first chapter is causing me to love this book so much is that the author doesn't merely assert that Jesus is better. But he demonstrates many various ways that Christ is, in fact, greater than anything. He's looking at how it is that Jesus is better, and he looks at it from one angle after another after another. And this morning, we get to see now another angle of how Jesus is better. You now, children, you probably have at some point in your life encountered a superhero, maybe in a cartoon or a comic strip. Maybe you have a favorite superhero. Think about superheroes. They're kind of like humans, but they're better. Right? They're more powerful. They're super. They have some kind of superpower that makes them kind of like a, a person, kind of like a human, and yet there's something spectacular about them, some special power. Superheroes don't exist. Uh, not in real life. There's adults that still dress up as superheroes and pretend to be superheroes. If that's you, I'm sorry for offending you, but stop doing that. But there are such things as angels. And angels are, are similar in a little bit, in a little fashion, to superheroes in that they're kind of almost, in some ways, like a human And yet they're not human, and they're superhuman. They are more powerful than humans. And the point that the author is making today is that as awesome as angels are, Jesus is better. Not just a little bit better. He actually says so very much better in the original. Angels are in fact not even close to Christ. He is way better than angels. And so our theme this morning is that angels, although glorious and powerful, do not even begin to compare to the Supreme and Majestic Son. We looked so far at the first four verses of Hebrews, which are one sentence in the original. And in that one sentence, God says that Jesus is his greatest spokesperson of all time. He's greater than any prophet, and he is the final word from the Father. He is the final priest and he is the ultimate king. And so now the author picks up on this thought that he was developing really in verse 4 and he begins to launch into how it is that Jesus compares to angelic beings. He's going to look at this three times with three statements and to just kind of frame this up, if you look at the beginning of verse 5, he will say, For to which of the angels did God ever say And then he's going to give some Old Testament citations and compare angels to Jesus. Then again in verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and again there will be this couplet, kind of a comparison between Jesus and the angels. And then in verse 8 of the Son, he says, and again he's going to explain some attributes there of Jesus. And so as we approach this passage this morning, I want to spend... Uh, a little bit of time in the beginning just looking at angels. What are angels? Who are they? Where did they come from? What do we know about them? Then understand why is this author introducing angels into this book? I mean, if you've ever read your Bible, you're probably not confused on the matter of whether Jesus or angels are better probably not a question that you had to wrestle with a long time in coming to the Lord. It's not really one that gets a lot of discussion in Christianity, whether Jesus or angels are better. So why this argument here? We want to understand that. And then we want to look at in the specific ways Jesus is uniquely better than angels. I want to read our passage for us this morning, and then we'll dive in. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning back up in verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs for to which of the angels did god ever say you are my son today i have begotten you or again i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and again when he brings the firstborn into the world he says let all god's angels worship him and of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In the first three verses of this chapter, Jesus is shown as superior to everything and everyone. And now the author takes that gen- general statement of Jesus being superior to everyone and everything, and he makes it very specific in a comparison to angels. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels. Much superior, so very much better than As we looked at last week, the idea that in that comparison, Jesus is so much significantly greater than an angelic being that it's not just a normal comparison of two things that are similar, but rather one that goes into the background and it kind of becomes instead of then or rather. This in no way denigrates God's relationship to angels, but it shows his superiority. So what is it that we know about angels, right? There's a lot of depictions of angels. Michael Landon was an angel in a TV show in the 80s, Highway to Heaven. You had uh, Touched by an Angel. It was a Hallmark special that went for a number of years. My dad used to call that Touched by an Anvil, and uh, that was what he thought of that show. But you have angels depicted and angels in the outfield. You have a number of um, instances going all the way back to the Christmas story, right, where Uh, The angel comes and uh, shows the man his life throughout. uh, Common pop culture, there are all types of depictions of angels. Uh, We talk about, you know, uh, the perfect child being a little angel, uh, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's a depiction that's used. There's a lot of, of pop ideas of what angels are. But angels, in fact, come up very often in Scripture. The Old Testament has 108 direct references to angels, and there's 165 references in the New Testament. You have to think about the distinction between humanity and the the angelic realm. Man alone is created in God's image. Man is unique and special in that regard. And in fact, man is created on earth above all other creatures. Man was the crown of creation. It was God's glory in creation. And so if you're a human being, male or female, you're distinct from all the animals and all the plants and everything else that exists on earth and that you have the imprint of God's representation on you, the very image of God in man. Humanity is the greatest reflection of God's glory in creation. All of your creativity, all of your self-consciousness, your conscience, your will, uh, all of that is the imprint of the design of your creator who put his image in you. The conversation I had with some young men this week, uh, trying to demonstrate the reality of uh, their moral culpability before God, and I just said to them, hey guys, listen, uh, beavers produce phenomenal work. Uh, building dams on creeks and rivers. They do things that that would, would be almost impossible for me to do. I don't think I'd be able to go and build a dam. But have you ever seen on the top of a dam a nice little deck for the family to enjoy looking at the sunset? Of course not. That'd be ridiculous and absurd. I mean, intrinsically, we understand that there's a distinction between humanity and all other creatures. It's the image of God in man. But angels aren't said to be created in God's image. And yet angels are said to be above God's people in their rank. So in angels were created. In fact, the Old Testament teaches that angels watched creation taking place. Hebrews 2 will say that when Jesus took on flesh and became a man, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Hebrews 2.9. And so angels are powerful, they are glorious, they are holy, and they are wise. They do not have the the weaknesses and infirmities that we have as humans. They're specially created spirit beings made by God. Angels are messengers. They reveal God's will. They announce key events. They protect God's people from harm, and they currently worship around His throne. I want to just give you some things that we know about angels from Scripture as we begin to get our minds around the heavenly host, the angelic realm. Angels are spirit beings, and they don't have flesh and bones. They do have bodies, but they don't have flesh and bones. They're capable of showing up in human form. Hebrews 13.2 says that some have entertained angels unawares. So, roughly the size of a human, they certainly can appear in that uh, form. Um, Many times, angels are bright. Matthew recorded that uh, at the tomb in Matthew 28, the guards were terrified because an angel appeared whose garment was white as snow. Angels appear in dazzling brilliance. Angels are intelligent, and angels have emotions. Uh, Luke 15.10 says that the angels rejoice, not when another angel gets its wings, but when a sinner comes to repentance and faith in Christ. They have a party in heaven. They rejoice. They experience gladness in their emotional state. They bring messages Angels, unlike humans, are not able to marry, according to Matthew 22. There's no baby angels, no procreation, uh, no child angel training. Uh, All the angels were created all at once. They were all uh, roughly young adults or whatever they would be represented as. And those were all the angels you get. No marriage, no procreation. Each with a unique identity. Angels, unlike humans, don't die. Angels cannot be annihilated. A third of them fell, according to Revelation 12:4. and now those angels exist in the demonic realm. Each angel is known by God. Angels are very powerful. In fact, there are uh, angels that would come and, at God's bidding, begin to slay even massive armies, easily, without breaking a sweat. We don't know exactly how many angels there are, but according to Revelation 5.11, there are at least myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Right now, these angels attend God himself, and they have various responsibilities. They have various rankings, We learn that they are over the thrones and dominions, principalities, powers, authorities throughout Scripture. Angels are always displayed as being strong and being mighty. In fact, in terms of our spiritual battles, the Apostle Paul would say that uh, we have great challenges in our spiritual battles, and it's not merely a uh, battle against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers. It's those unseen forces, those angelic spirit beings that are fallen that now wage war against your soul. Some angels have names. You know the names, Michael and Gabriel, even Lucifer. Minis- uh, angels were there ministering to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember at the end of his temptation, uh, the angels came and they attended to his needs. They were there to minister to him. And so even now, angels are serving at God's pleasure, both worshiping him around the throne as well as doing his bidding in the world. And so if you've read the Bible, you've encountered angels before, and it's probably never crossed your mind Maybe maybe angels and Jesus are on the same playing field. Maybe there's an equal sign. It's probably not an area that you've ever been confused. And so why is it that this author is addressing the matter of angels right now in this sermon? Well, some believe that it's because there was a problem in the audience of the Hebrews with angel worship. In other words, much like how the Catholic Church would uh, venerate saints, and they would worship Mary along with a host of other saints in an inappropriate fashion, maybe these believers were beginning to have angel-olatry, and they were idolatry in in their worship of angels. The place that you might go to establish this would be uh, the the doctrinal problems that were confronting the the believers at Colossae are referenced in Colossians 2.18, And Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. So someone somewhere, at least, was encouraging the church in the worship of angels. But interpretively, I have a hard time buying that that was the issue that was going on here. I don't think there was a, a misplaced worship of angels because... First of all, it it doesn't fit the idea that these people who came to Christ in faith and repentance were now worshiping something other than the one true living God. Second, there's no correction given. There's no correction here. There's nothing negative stated about angels. There's no instruction to stop worshiping angels. And if there was a problem with the worship of angels amongst these believers, it would seem that you'd have some type of corrective statement saying you need to stop doing that. It's idolatry. Rather, if you think about it this way, angels were were highly esteemed in Jewish thought. Angels were highly esteemed in Jewish thought. And so what I believe the author's doing here is that by highlighting the inferiority of angels vis-a-vis the sun to people who already had a high view of angels, it's just showing how supreme and wonderful Jesus Christ really is. In other words, this is best seen as a rhetorical device. It's a method of argumentation where you go from that which is lesser to that which is greater. It's a way of making your point stick. It was a method of argumentation we use today. It was popular among rabbis. And the idea was that if this is true in a lesser situation, then how much greater is it true in the greater situation? Part of this is the context because all of this argument about Jesus' relationship to angels Terminates in chapter 2, verse 1. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at this, but the preacher author there says in Hebrews 2, 1, Therefore, therefore in light of how much better Jesus is than angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So what this argument is doing then is, is it's coming to these hearers, these Jewish hearers, that had heard God's revelation through the prophets. And when we think of God's revelation through the prophets, we just think about Moses, we think about Isaiah, we think about Jeremiah, we go down the list of all the prophets that were coming. And yet in the midst of the giving of God's revelation, there were angels present. Angels were present. Angels were at Mount Sinai. Angels were there when Moses was receiving revelation from God. How we know is uh, Stephen, when he was preaching that final sermon in Acts chapter 7 before he was stoned, said, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He went on and said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying that there were angels attending there at Sinai in the delivering of the law. Paul would affirm a similar thing in Galatians 3 when he'd say, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So we don't know what the angels' exact role was in the giving of the law, but we know that they were there. We know that they were present and that they were involved and that they were playing a role as the mediators of the covenant. And so now when you come to our context in Hebrews, you have Jews who had trusted in the God of the Old Testament. They had followed the old covenant prescriptions. They'd upheld the Mosaic law. They'd looked to Moses and to Aaron and to the priesthood. With that, there would have been a high regard for angels who were present attending the message of the giving of the law. Now the author says, I want you to stop and recognize that if you needed to pay attention to the message that came to you mediated by angels, how much more the message that comes to you by the Son. See, that's the connection here to Hebrews. Angels are primarily messengers. That's what the name means. So next time you hear someone say, oh, She's just a little angel. You just assume, oh, they're just saying she's a little messenger. That's what they mean. Just a little messenger. Angel means messenger. And so these messengers that came and brought the law were these wonderful pinnacle of God's creation, and yet the sun was so much better. And so now the author begins to get into this argument, and he's going to demonstrate now how Jesus is uniquely better than angels first in his exclusive sonship then in his elevated status and finally in his endless sovereignty the other says here in verse 5 for to which of the angels did god ever say you are my son today i have begotten you or again i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son yet here is that god speaks to his son he relates to his son differently than he relates to the angelic world. In fact, this is a very personal reference. It's a reference to Psalm chapter 2. I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Now the question is, when is this day that the son was begotten? Was it at creation? Was it at the resurrection? Was it at the second coming? I believe here that this is the idea of the son's glory when he is exalted in his enthronement. Psalm 2, the context is the son coming into his throne and so the father is saying, today is your coronation day. You're to think about how this relates very often in a royal family. If uh, the person who's currently seated on the throne is deceased and the heir is a child, a baby at the time, that baby will now receive the right to rule and the authority. But we don't put nine-month-olds on the throne, right? We wait a little while to actually have them ascend to their glory. And so when the text says, today I've begotten you, what that's referring to is the fact that Jesus has always had the rights to the throne as heir. But there's coming a day where he's actually going to be revealed and all of that glory is going to be peeled back and everyone will see him as he's coronated in that moment. The day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is the very son of God. This is the son that God the Father claims. And he doesn't have a distant relationship with his son. There's not a, a broken tension. He uh, God the Father wasn't, um, you know, the the MIA, negligent father in the relationship with the son. The son wasn't a rebellious son. Rather, there was great intimacy. And so in his baptism, the father looked down on Jesus and said, You are my beloved son, according to Luke 3.22. You are my loved son. You're my unique son. You're my only, only son. I have no other sons in that sense. Certainly we're made sons of God by our relationship to Christ, but he is the one and only he's exclusive in this. The Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9.35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. See, the father's relationship to the son is absolutely unique absolutely precious. It's the same uh, idea that was promised and uh, this writer's now referencing back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, where God said, I will be to him, I will be to your offspring, a father, and he shall be to me a son. The idea here is that the father proudly associates himself with the son who is in his likeness. Father and Son mean that both persons of the Godhead are intrinsically of the same essence. There's just a distinction in roles. And the idea here is that when you hear the Father speak to the Son, He says things to the Son, about the Son, and relates to the Son in a way that's entirely different than the angels. Think of it this way. A number of years ago, I was uh, just one of those days where I didn't have my paperwork and I was showing up at a person's home. Uh, to conduct a sales call, and uh, I think it was maybe back in the day when we still had the Nextel walkie-talkies. So if you remember those, and you would talk to people on the walkie-talkie, that was so fun. I kind of don't know why we got rid of those, but um, I had a I had my Nextel flip phone walkie-talkie. I couldn't get a hold of the office. I didn't have my paperwork. For some reason, I had the address, but I didn't have the name of the people that I was meeting. And, um, you know, one option is just to say, man, I lost my paperwork and I don't know your name. Could you tell it to me? But, you know, that would be, that would be far too embarrassing. I would set things off on the wrong foot. So I just thought, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of get in and see what happens. Maybe we can find a name. I don't know, I guess on a business card on a desk or something. I don't know exactly what I was thinking, but while I was working in one of the rooms, I overheard the husband address his wife. And I thought, perfect. I've got the name. So now I go and I get everything prepared and we sit down at the dining room table and I say her name that I heard him say. And immediately it's apparent to me and them that that was not the name that anyone else called her. That was the name that he had for her. That was a special name. That was a a term of endearment that only the husband and now me say to his wife. The idea there is that there's a there's a very special connection, a special relationship that he would say things to her that no one else would. And so when the father speaks to the son whom he delights in, he speaks to the son in a way that's different than he speaks to anyone else. He takes the credit because they're in the same essence. This is his one and only and unique son. And so Jesus is demonstrated as better than angels because of the way that the father speaks to him. He says, you are my son, and I will be to him a father. This is the idea that really this relationship ontologically existed in the father and the son in eternity past. This wasn't something that just happened when Jesus was incarnated. In fact, if you think about John 3.16, it's for God to love the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so in the Trinity, the Father and the Son have always related in this way. And it is unique. It is unlike how he relates to angels. Secondly, Jesus is uniquely better than angels in his elevated status. His elevated status. Here to think of it this way, between angels and Jesus, who exists for whom? Who exists for whom? What we see here is, is a ranking. And the fact that angels exist and were created for the worship and attending and serving and meeting the needs of the Son. Not the other way around. Verse 6 again when he brings the firstborn into the world. He says let all God's angels worship him. And the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. When God brought his firstborn into the world, this kind of sounds like his birth, but if you think back to the birth, it was actually uh, angels testifying, and they were giving glory to God in the highest for sending Jesus. So the angels weren't the ones at that moment worshiping Christ. The angels were worshiping the Father and giving him thanks for sending the Son, I believe that what is speaking of here is the firstborn of the world is the preeminent one over the world. It is the preeminent of all creation. And the idea is that when the preeminent one is displayed before all of the world is preeminent, all of the angels will surround him in praise. of it this way. This is when the preeminent Christ is finally unfurled before all of his creatures. And those who've denied his existence, those who have... Uh, rejected him outright, will all see him in his glorious splendor along with all of those who've been bought and paid for by his precious blood. This is the idea that it will be a very personal relationship when God calls each and every single one of the angels to come and gather around the sun and worship him. And at that moment, all of them will obey. See, this is truly fitting. This is something that could only happen to God alone. For all of the angels to attend him in this way. We see that the angels, the very purpose of their existence, uh, verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, is that their job was to attend the sun from the very beginning. That's why they are in existence. Think about our job. Part of our role is servants, of course. Jesus came and he was a servant. And yet that was a temporary assignment given by Christ, as he would go from glory to glory. But the, the angels are ministers. That is their station and that is their lot in life. And so the writer of Hebrews is drawing now from Psalm 97 and Psalm 104 and he's bringing this imagery uh, of these highly regarded angels and he's establishing that angels exist for Jesus and it's not the other way around. Think about how important that is. Remember, a number of years ago, uh, part of an organization who was uh, committed to serving customers first. And at some point along the way, we said, you know what, we're beginning to recognize that we're having an identity crisis where we're beginning to think that, that we don't exist to serve customers, but customers exist to serve us. We're starting to have policies and procedures that indicate that we believe the customer exists to serve us, not the other way around. We'd forgotten and lost our way the fundamental starting point that a business exists to meet the needs of the customers, not the other way around. And so angels here serve at the pleasure of the king. They attend his every need. They carry out his every wish. They exalt him day and night They love to peer into redemption. Uh, The imagery in the New Testament is that they, they stoop over and look at God's work in redeeming sinners because when the angels fell as demons, there was no plan of redemption. There was no cross. There was no forgiveness. There was no atonement. That was something that God gave only to humanity. And so these ministers were there proclaiming the arrival of Jesus. They were there ministering to him in his temptation and his humanity and weakness. They were there at his resurrection Angels are always the worshipers, and he is the worshipped. They're the creatures, he is the creator. They're the reflectors, and he's the radiance. They're the ruled, and he is the ruler. And Yet, as we'll see in the next chapter, Jesus was then, for a little while, made lower than the angels. Because he took on humanity. That's what it meant to have the infirmities and the weaknesses of flesh. It means that if you were to to think about being a human then, you are are now under the the glory and the prominence of all of the angelic realm, the unseen beings. Yet Jesus would, of course, be exalted. And so in our final point here, we see that Jesus is uniquely better than angels, not only in his exclusive sonship and his elevated status, but in his endless sovereignty. His endless sovereignty. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word sovereignty, but if you're to think of other words to connect to that, it would be His rulership. His majesty. His dominion. His power. and His honor and His glory. His independence. His self-existence. And ultimately, his authority. When we say sovereignty, these are the things that we mean. And to be sovereign means to be king. And so this son is a son who is a king. And his monarchy is noteworthy. Here in the text, we see that it's a a righteous monarchy. There's perfections that are endless. It's a never-ending monarchy, meaning that it's endless in its duration. And it's an absolute monarchy meaning that it's endless in its boundaries. Not only in its extent, the entire universe, and its authority, which is unrivaled, but in its duration, it is never ending. It is eternal. A direct quote from Psalm 45 comes in verse 8, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. See, this is a kingdom that is characterized by righteousness that will never end. It will endure forever and ever. You look at the, the longest reigning monarchs in the history of the world. It gets a little difficult to analyze exactly when someone came to power and when they were coronated and how many years it was. So there's a little bit of discussion. But guess what? It never really gets above 80 years. That's about the longest one human can maintain power. 80 years. It's the longest reigning a monarch has experienced. And yet here, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is an authority that will never end. Jesus never dies. He never expires. He never has a succession plan where he gives the throne to anyone else. And this kingdom, unlike the kingdoms of the world, is ruled with a scepter that is upright because he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Listen, when you're in an absolute monarchy, uh, you you are under the authority of that monarch for good or for bad. Fidel Castro reigned, not as a king, but as a dictator over Cuba for nearly 50 years. His will was what happened exclusively. He didn't have anyone else to to check it by, there weren't three branches of governments. What he said went. And the idea here is that this son who has a throne that reigns forever rules loving righteousness and hating wickedness. This is a kingdom that you and I want to be a part of. He's anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. That means that there will be joy in this kingdom, there will be glory in this kingdom. It's one that demonstrates his very deity that he reigns not simply as a man, but as God himself. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now he's quoting Psalm 102. And he's describing this idea that if you think about everything that you see around you, everything that seems so important in your life right now, it's all going to eventually go away like a worn out garment. So you know, as I was preparing this, I just threw out a pair of jeans that I bought, I think, five or six years ago, and they finally wore all the way out. It was time to get rid of them. I wore that garment out. I mean every every garment at some point becomes faded it becomes torn it becomes threadbare they don't last forever and the analogy here is that that is as wonderful and magnificent as the universe is as incredible as uh, the world and all of its sustenance is on this earth right now it will one day get discarded just like a threadbare and worn out garment 2 Peter 3.10 says it's it's not going to get dropped off at goodwill, but rather the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It is that at some point the Lord will say, it is now time and when he says that, this entire globe will be burned up. That means all of... The work that you do to make a a beautiful home, which is a great desire, it's going to get burned up one day. All of the the vanity of pursuing life under the sun that Solomon would talk about. It's a vain thing. It's vain to stay up late and to get up early simply to eat the bread of anxious toil. It's vain to try and build and establish uh, your own reputation and your own future and inheritance it all ultimately will perish like a garment. And so as you are hearing these psalms, as you're in the audience, as the letter is being read, you're instantly reminded of the unrivaled deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're understanding the, the importance of, of having a relationship with this eternal king and being part of his eternal kingdom. One day when he reigns, he will reign in absolute authority. Verse 13, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? means everyone who is opposed to Christ will one day be in submission to Christ. everyone who's ever scoffed at his name, everyone who's ever rejected him in unbelief, everyone who's ever treaded lightly upon his grace and disregarded it. And this day is not right now. This is a day that is coming in the future. In fact, the son is right now seated at the right hand of God, which as we said last week means he's co-equal with the father. And yet He's reigning in submission to the Father. So the only thing above the Son is the Father. The Son is in ultimate glory over all creation. And He's waiting until for a future date when your enemies will be a footstool for your feet. So Paul wrote about to the church at Corinth when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. See right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father but the full expression of this kingdom where all of the enemies are vanquished is a day that is still waiting. And so the author is is building this case, building this argument to understand that as great and glorious and highly regarded as angels were in the Jewish mind and appropriately so as they were crowned even above humanity, they don't even compare to the divine son. They're nothing compared to the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so when you think about angels and how impressive they are, you can think about how small they are in comparison to Jesus. And now when you bring that full circle, the comfort that it is that nothing can ever threaten your standing before God if you are in Christ. Paul told the church at Rome, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, this son, his unique exclusive son whom he loved, his perfect son, his son that had an exalted status. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. And now to the one who is much greater than angels. Paul writes, for I am sure, I am confident, that neither death nor life nor angels Angels who are more powerful than you, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we reflect on the majesty and the power of the very Son of God, and we recognize that by simple faith in Him, uh, the right man is now on our side, Uh, the man of God's own choosing, Uh, the one that is so powerful that uh, we don't have to and could never fear any power, whether that was a fear of man and what men could do to us, or whether it's a fear of what we might even do to our own selves or our lack of faith. Lord, and then certainly that even the greatest power, whether it be an angel from heaven or a demon from below, Lord, none of those things could ever separate us from your love because of the unrivaled nature of the Son and His power and His glory. Lord, we want to treasure these things. We want to find comfort in them. Comfort in your coming kingdom. Comfort in your reigning sovereignty even now. or to not to think that we need anything other than Christ for he is enough we love you so much amen